from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER Bulletin Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch and I am a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. Today on the podcast with me, I have Camino Matera Martinez, who's a senior research fellow at the CER calling in from Brussels, and Ian Bond, our director of foreign policy in London. Welcome back to the podcast, both. This week, we have another bulletin podcast. Every two months, the CER publishes the bulletin, which features three topics that are important for Europe right now. On the podcast, researchers then each get three quickfire questions and five minutes to pitch their argument to listeners. Though this episode, we might make that six minutes each. We've got a bit more time since we're one man short. Sam Lowe, who has written a piece for the bulletin, then went off to get married. Congratulations, Sam. Uh, in his absence, we will be talking about the two remaining excellent pieces on China's Belt and Road Initiative and on how the EU should respond and on the EU's fight against disinformation campaigns. Ian, I think we'll begin with you and with your piece on China, as you put it, buying hearts and minds in Europe, a great title. Uh, now, as you write in your piece, a few years ago, Europe saw China entirely in terms of opportunities. Now there are a lot more concerns. Why is that? Well, as we've got more experience of the Belt and Road Initiative, it's become clearer that it's not just um, an economic project, but it's also a geopolitical project. And some of the downsides of it have become clearer. You're seeing that some of the countries that have welcomed Chinese investment with open arms are finding that actually the, the debt burden of paying for Chinese projects is unsustainable. And also, Europe is finding that China uses its leverage to get European countries to break ranks uh, on issues of concern to China, like criticism of China's human rights record. Now, Europe has other partners in Asia besides China. How is the changing perception of China affecting relationships with countries like Japan, for example? That, that's been a really interesting development. Last month, we had the big Asia-Europe meeting, the summit of more than 50 Asian and European countries in Brussels. And in the run-up to that, the EU uh, agreed on a Asia-Europe connectivity plan. And the idea of that is to work more with like-minded countries like Japan and also India. And rather than just focusing on improving transport connections between Europe and China, which was the focus of the EU-China connectivity platform that was agreed in 2015, in this case, what Europe is trying to do is to use some of the principles that we share with other countries in Asia and to develop connections between Asia and Europe on that basis. So that's, you know, things like uh, transparency, open markets, to some extent, some principles of human rights and good governance and so on. And so countries like Japan have a, a crucial role to play in that. And I think you can expect to see Europe doing more to reach out to partners like that in the Asia-Pacific region. 
We've seen the conflict or at least the rhetoric between the United States and China heating up over recent months. What impact is Donald Trump's foreign policy having on the EU-China relationship? Trump's having a paradoxical impact on the EU-China relationship because uh, on the one hand, Europe shares a number of the US's concerns about China's trading practices, about its assertive foreign policy towards its neighbors, uh, its big territorial claims in the South China Sea and so on. Uh, but the fact that Trump almost brackets the EU and China together as trade enemies of the US, if I can put it in those terms, means that uh, he he's almost forcing the EU and China to have to work together more closely in for example, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, uh, than they would otherwise do. There are plenty of trade disputes between the EU and China, and in normal circumstances, they would probably be working against each other in the WTO trying to resolve those disputes. But Trump is making them look for areas of common ground so that they can still stand up for the principle of free trade and the liberal international economic order. Thank you very much, Ian, and I highly recommend that listeners look at your recent bulletin piece on China buying hearts and minds in Europe that you can also find on the CIA website. Now, Camino, turning to you, for this bulletin you have written about disinformation campaigns or fake news. Maybe just to begin with, what are disinformation campaigns and why are they a threat to Europe? Yes, so disinformation campaigns, I think it's a, it's a bit of a difficult term to define. I think not even the European Union has uh, decided very well what this is. But I'd say um, it's basically attempts to deceive people and these attempts are in order to actually have some sort of gains. So either electoral gains by, say, destabilizing elections and these sort of things, but also geopolitical gains by, for example, shaming the European Union or, or, or other uh, Western countries in, in, some, in some way. Why is it a threat to Europe? I think it's, it's a threat to the West in general. And we've seen in recent times how um, some of these disinformation campaigns uh, orchestrated from from uh, Russia, North Korea and other places have actually had the ability to, to, to alter results, to influence the way people look at things and to influence the way people's opinions uh, are formed. I think the main risk to Europe is that some you know, organizations or, or some uh, less than friendly governments, let's say, can try to use uh, fake news, but also fake social media accounts, automated or robotic uh, social media accounts, which are called bots, to, to spread false news, to change people's views on some issues. And this is very dangerous for um, elect electoral process all across the continent, and in particular for the European Parliament elections, uh, which will happen in May next year. Now, in your really interesting insight, you talk about some of the things that the EU is trying to do to tackle disinformation campaigns. What are the challenges specifically for an organization like the EU in trying to address this problem of fake news? I think there are two challenges. So the, the European Union is, if you want, a regulatory body, right? So it's, it, it's used to deal with things through laws. And disinformation campaigns are not well tackled through laws. Um, I think, luckily, the European Union has realized that this is the case, 
and the way they are looking at it is instead of passing laws, also because of how difficult it is to distinguish what a disinformation campaign and is from, from you know, like trying not to alter freedom of speech. I think, as I was saying, so instead of passing laws, uh, what the European Union is trying to do is to work together with those who have the expertise, like social media companies, to tackle uh, this phenomenon from the, the outset. So say the European Union is trying to work with, say, Twitter, Facebook, and all these sort of companies so that they would agree to have some algorithm which um, privilege, for example, information coming from well-respected uh, sources first in social media and also in search engines, but also, for example, by agreeing to deprive from advertising money um, those accounts or those fake accounts that are helping uh, spreading this, this fake news. To do that, the European Union has unveiled a code of practice, a voluntary code of practice with uh, social media companies and internet companies, and this was launched in September, so we still don't know how useful uh, this is going to be. It's a voluntary approach. There is no way to enforce what there is in the code. It's basically social media companies saying, okay, we, we'll agree to do this kind of things. But the European Union has said if the code doesn't work and it will present a review by the end of the year, it will consider passing binding laws. Another thing the European Union is doing to fight, uh, especially uh, Russia propaganda, is to set up what they call task forces, STRATCOM. Uh, it's a very obscure name, so I don't like that name. Uh, but basically, um, within the, the, the European External Action Service, there are three teams working to debunk uh, myths and, and try to fight propaganda coming from Russia and elsewhere. There is the East uh, STRATCOM Task Force, and I'm sorry for that horrible name, but it's not my, it's not my doing, which has a dedicated Twitter account, publishes a weekly newsletter and keeps a database of disinformation campaigns coming from Russia. There is the Western Balkans uh, Stratcom Task Force, which does kind of the same, but with a specific focus uh, on the Western uh, Balkan region. And then there is the South Stratcom Task Force, which tries to fight narratives coming from uh, the Islamic State terrorist organization and other like-minded groups uh, in North Africa and the Middle East. So in your piece, you have a really great uh, sentence which says something along the lines of the fact that through laws and algorithms alone the EU cannot be tackling a challenge like this. What in your mind should Europe be doing other than the things you've just listed then to counter disinformation campaigns? Right. I think uh, the question of passing laws is very tricky and we've seen how this has led to some problems with civil society and human rights organizations and these sort of things in countries like Germany and France who've recently passed laws allowing courts and the government basically to take down fake news because as I was saying before the line between what is a fake news and what is um, actual and genuine freedom of speech stuff is very, very thin. Algorithm is a good thing, but as we all know, they don't always work. So I think one of the things that's, that, that could also be helpful is to try to educate uh, target audiences. I think uh, there should be a dual-track uh, approach in fighting disinformation campaigns. So on the one hand, it's very good to target and to um, kind of address what the originators of fake news are doing through, as I was saying before, initiatives, algorithms, laws, and all this sort of like uh, panoply of measures. It's also very, very important to educate citizens to be critical, to distinguish what a fake news can be, how it looks like, and which kind of shape can it take from genuine and 
coherent and rational piece of information. I think that's a very big challenge, not only for the European Union, but also for national governments, and, and, and I, I guess for, for all of us, like myself, trying to educate um, uh, children. So it's very, very important, I think, to, to not uh, lose sight of the fact that in order to fight fake news, we need to raise critical individuals, so people with, with the ability to distinguish what is true from what is not. And again, you can find Camino's piece, Europe's Fight Against Disinformation, on the CEA Bulletin and the CEA website. Thank you both so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sophia. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CEA underscore EU.